So there's something both very exciting and very scary about this topic, and we're taking the plunge. <laughs> so... And it's winter, and so we're going to get cold when we, we go in, but it is, it's exhilarating, this topic. I, maybe to, to, to start us off, I want to throw in some, some big things that are go- coming to me through, through my heart as I, as I think about this. Um, for me, the question of sexuality, the question of power, inquiry, and we'll, we'll get to some definitions, I hope, in a, in a few minutes, but, these are really at the heart of remaking democracy. And I feel that that's what's going on for us in the Me Too moment. Um, it's, it's just a really big time that our creativity, which is so anchored deeply in our body, gets to come out. And, and that we get to do that in partnership, women and men together as opposed to talking about each other with frustration, that we do that together. And of course, that's what makes it so scary. Exhilarating and scary. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because um, when I was <clears throat> young, when I was 20 years old in the early 60s, uh, there was no simple form of birth control. Uh, people were still not supposed to uh, engage in sex until they got married. Um, I remained a virgin for a long time, and I was scared to death of the demand on boys to take the initiative with girls. Um, and I can well imagine that for some people that fear gets uh, transformed into a kind of assertiveness or aggressiveness. Um, but uh, I remained afraid <laughs> for the most part. And then this sexual revolution opened up in front of me in my mid and late 20s. Um, and in the first blush of feminism, uh, women, uh, at least in the university environments that I was mainly involved in, um, were, it seemed, instantly liberated and very confident of themselves. And seemed to even it all out and make it easier. And besides, I was uh, trying to learn how to exercise mutual power, and I thought I was really good at it and actually found out what the woman wanted to do when I was with her. And uh, it wasn't until much later um, when AIDS came about and when um, a more critical form of feminism developed and um, leading right up to the uh, Me Too movement in the last few months um that um, I began to realize that uh, I still had this, even though I was trying to act in a mutual equalitarian way, um, uh, I had tremendous institutional power vested in me, partly as a white man, partly as a professor in a university, um, and as a sort of well-known consultant, coach, and so forth. So, um, But I didn't, I mean, I knew that intellectually, but I didn't understand emotionally fully, the degree to which this might incli- might warp the environment I walked around in and might um, make women more inclined to say, uh, to, to appear to say yes uh, than uh, really mean it. So uh, now um, I'm 74 years old. I'm too old for the game. Um, but, but I still am left with this um, sense of 
of, of fear and uncertainty and a realization that I didn't take into account class and gender and institutional factors, the large collective factors that influence people's feelings about who has power. Yeah. So that, that, that I, I was uh, living, I didn't see the, I didn't, I wasn't good at seeing the shadow really until Hillary uh, began getting after me as we were writing our book, Arrow's Power, together. Um, and and uh, as anyone who looks at it will see, uh, there are uh, repeated critiques by Hillary of my obtuseness, um, and she gradually got through. Yeah, thank you, thank you. But, you know, um, was will das vibe, yeah? A famous, a famous man was once asked that question. And, and I think for me, while I, while I've so appreciated the conversation with Bill kickstarting something that I now bring to, to many relationships is, is understanding that, you know, when we had this sexual revolution in the 60s and I was born in the in the late 60s, we, we started this revolution. The idea that women were kind of cast out from patriarchy and patriarchy was somehow over and now we're going to find our full selves inside of conditioning, deep, deep millennial old conditioning, and we're just going to cast that off. So so Bill's, Bill's, Bill's comment about how we fooled each other, and we have been fooled, I think, ourselves. And women now, I feel, and I, uh, I'm, I'm certainly one of them, we're, we're actually allowing ourselves the gift of finding out what is it we actually want with one another, because we're also understanding that men have been deeply oppressed inside of patriarchy, this, this inability to talk about their emotions, this inability to feel their body, often sending them towards women to feel women's bodies, to feel women's emotions, right? Um, and then women in turn having to be agents inside this, this container that we've received. So, so literally, um, let's bring in our first big word, inquiry, which doesn't sound terribly sexy. I think is one of the most important uh, aids to to our creativity, to our sexuality, because we begin to ask ourselves and inquire with our bodies, with one another. Ooh, what fun! Um, what is it we actually want, as opposed to these terrible stories we've been given about power and power over and 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 sex as sport, right? So so sex is genuinely meeting each other and the self such that we can arise as creative beings together. But what a marvelous, what a marvelous gift and opportunity. So, so what I'm hearing you say, uh, and that's where the connection between both of you is, Bill was also mentioning before about the sense of pressure that he felt. Um, and um, in a way, this is about uh, being imprisoned into roles and expectations, and that the alternative to that prison in which we can uh, feel really disconnected from ourselves and uh, in a role of performing is actually the mechanism of inquiry, of connecting through uh, a sense of curiosity of wanting to know each other and of, in a way, creating a space for connection. 
Right, but that's that, that's extremely difficult because the inquiry involves becoming vulnerable, becoming aware of one's own actual feelings, which include um, feelings like, gosh, I don't want to be rejected, so asking this question is dangerous. I mean, uh, I might... I might uh, be told no uh, when I called uh, my the eighth grade girl that I was um, um, somehow drawn to at that time and asked her to come to the class dance with me. Uh, she said, uh, no, I, I've already been asked. And um, I just lost it completely, put the phone down, rushed down to my mother's lap and wept piteously. Um, I mean, my self concept couldn't uh, couldn't accept that even even ten years later in my early twenties um, you know it, it the idea of actually talking directly about what I felt and how the other person felt and having an ego capable of tolerating what the response was um, was difficult it was mm-hmm. very difficult and uh you know, I, I partly fooled myself by by becoming a professional about talking about feelings, but it was it was easy to talk about some kinds of feelings and easy to help other people talk about their feelings. But there were quality the qualities of feelings around sex were in fact very difficult to talk about. Yeah, yeah. So, so what you're pointing out is that the real crux of the matter, the difficulty is in being able to tolerate the vulnerability about uh, being rejected, about not being accepted, about not being wanted. Right. Yeah, but there's a little bit more, I think, for for women also historically. Um, So we're talking about fear dynamics here and shame dynamics, and they're they're incredibly paralyzing for both women and men. But added to it for women, I think, is this um, vestigial fear. It's a fear that so many of us are now saying to each other, yeah, I I was harassed, I was attacked. I I think I listed um, for myself one time a whole, it was a whole page, and then I just kind of gave up from the age of nine on. Um, so how, how pervasive this is, how dangerous this is. And so as a man is, is coming through his conditioning to feel his vulnerability, a woman actually is coming through her conditioning and, and vulnerability is kind of a, a tricky thing because a woman is almost conditioned to be vulnerable, but in a, in a kind of, in a bad way, right? So, so this inquiry is, is different and we can hook each other. And so we have to create um, spaciousness and safety um, with each other, but also for ourselves. I, I'll mention to be concrete about it, the, the book that, um, that, that we wrote, I don't think it's so easy to just sit down and, you know, everybody do this. I don't think we would presume that. I, I myself have, um, was, was in psychoanalysis for, for many years. Um, which included the years of, of writing about this, about this material. And I think creating a spacious container for the self, some kind of mindfulness practice is really good to allow the vulnerability or the shame to actually be felt. Um, because it's such, well, I, I know that you're a psychotherapist and probably know this better than me, uh, 
search, but it's such a sticky and disgusting emotion. It's designed to make us run away from it, right? So to, to invite ourselves to relax into those levels of shame that I also have a kind of a mystical understanding of what we're up to. It's not just me. It's not just Hillary. It's not just Bill. If anything, we're kind of breaking through the mists of time, quite honestly, to, to begin to talk. The conversation is actually rather simple. The breaking through is really, really, really difficult because, you know, why? Because our body has been shut down around this stuff. God bless me. I grew up as a, as an Irish Catholic and, and Bill, an American wasp. You know, who could have thought such a marvelous patriarchal ruses as these. Mm-hmm. But so you're talking about that sense of what's really difficult is to confront the embodied experience of shame. And so in a way of all the pressures and habits of society uh, and the experiences that, uh, you know, we're, uh, you know, feeling demeaning of um, people leering at you or worse, um, it just creates something that makes, that is very present in your interactions with men. With mine, with men, yes, absolutely. Mm. Um, but, but by the way, I think there's relationships with, with women as well, issues of power. I, I think, um, Bill, Bill and I have been thinking about this primarily through the question of how do we transform power relationships? Um, and sexuality is therefore a, a, a part of that. It's also a, a catalyst for, for this kind of social transformation, at least as, as I think about it. Um, but yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. So turning, uh, you know, something that's shaped by power into something that allows for more mutuality. And, and that has been pretty much the theme of your life work. Yeah. I mean, over, over the, over the years, um, working with developmental theory and then gradually realizing that, um, that each developmental action logic has its own definition of power and that all of the early action logics we grow through, um, power is thought to be unilateral in nature. Um, and it's only at the late action logics that one begins to recognize that there's a far greater power, uh, in, in mutuality that in fact pe- people can't be transformed by force. Uh, they can only transform when they are cooperating with somebody else who's uh, playing playing a feedback role with them in some way or other or some environment that's doing that. Uh, so, um, yes, it, it has been my life's work to think about, um, about mutual power and how it can be used. But, of course, most of our institutions are still lodged at the early action logics. Um, and uh, just as there are relatively few people and to guide us in in a work of trying to develop ourselves there's even less uh exemplification of a late action logic organization or institution some of the ones that we most hope are that kind of institution such as spiritual teachings often have turned out 
to have their own huge shadow of uh, sexual um, uh, sexual uh, presumption by the master and teacher. And uh, one of the most searing three-day experiences I had, and Hillary was there, is in the company of of about a, a, a little more, a dozen and a half of us men and women, um, in which my role in the group was the one of the main contentious issues. And uh, I, I felt myself being stripped by the feedback I was receiving, um, partly shock because I had brought these people together precisely in order to create a mutual power situation. So how could they, how could they blame me, um, when I didn't have any particular power role in the group? Of course, I had brought the group together to begin with. So, um, again, I was being a little blind, uh, but, but we need situations like that in senior executive teams. We need people to receive that kind of harsh feedback. Um, but uh, as as a normal part of business, you might say, um, and that uh, and you know I have been with one or two executive teams that have uh, really made breakthroughs in terms of talking about differences in power and different kinds of power that are being used, and how that uh, how the women looked in terms of their use of power and how the men looked in terms of their use of power. So, you know, I have seen circumstances where that kind of conversation has happened, uh, but they seem to be still rare. I want to, to reconnect to something you said uh, earlier in this, uh, in, when you were speaking. You're referring to action logic. And so I want to maybe just find a brief definition of, like, my, my understanding of it would be, like, a worldview that's a, like a, an embodied worldview, an all-encompassing, whole-person worldview that corresponds to each stage of development. You know, is, is how would you, is that kind of how you, you have in mind? Yes, uh, yes, very much. Um, and, uh, you know, in a way, the early action logics are played out throughout society. I mean, we talk about the opportunist as often, I mean, it's appropriate to be an opportunist as a young kid. One is trying to learn how the world works and how you, when you push this lever, what happens? And uh, to boss one's father and mo mother around because they're supposed to be helping me. Um, and then there, the, then there's the age of the what we call the diplomat, um, where uh, instead of bossing everybody around, we suddenly realize it'd be better to cultivate um, uh, their attraction to us. And uh, we try to act attractively in groups. Um, and uh, we we don't want to get negative feedback because we're that would just undo us uh, because we depend upon other people's approbation. And then there's a movement to the expert action logic where one realizes all this emotional stuff is hard to make any decision. I want to have uh, some kind of model of the world that permits me to act rationally. Um, and uh, some people try to, you know, use accounting or marketing or sailboating or any other craft as as their guide in life as to how to do things right so each then there's the achiever level and then where one suddenly realizes oh i have a world view the world isn't exactly the way i assumed it was um and i can change my world view uh, that's a fairly unusual and sophisticated place to get to and but in a way uh the whole world is coming into this into this redefining perspective now because nobody can live in their own tribe without 
uh, being engaged with other tribes. So your, your assumptions about what's right are coming into question all the time. So, um, in a way, we're being pushed up the developmental scale by, by worldwide developments, uh, but maybe not fast enough. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. So there, as I'm hearing it, is there's a sense of a, individually we have these stages of development, but also as a broad society, uh, we also have them. And so in a way, the crisis that we're experiencing in terms of uh, uh, sexual harassment, sexual relations, is at the same time an opportunity to actually uh, renegotiate uh, the old roles. In Absolutely. a sense of um, shifting from unilateral uh, and a sense of power, you know, a sense of I don't have and I won't have unless I assert power in some way, to um, actually uh, if I don't have it, the way to have it is through the negotiation and mutuality. Right, and if I can just add something more there, I think that's uh, one of the challenges for the Me Too movement, uh, and now maybe the Time's Up movement, um, is that um, it's women have to be careful not simply to start using the new power of their visibility and of the opprobrium that... Uh, that uh, comes to the men who are identified as being more coercive power users in their relations, uh, women have to be careful not to uh, gloat too long or think that the issue will be resolved simply by um, this uh, outpouring of witnessing of inappropriate behavior. That, that's an important first step. Uh, but uh, men have to be drawn into learning new behaviors, and women too. Women have to be careful not to say, ha-ha, now I have some unilateral power, I'm going to use it. And that that's very difficult because if somebody's been powerless and they feel more power, it, it's very easy not to think too long about what kind of power we are using. Uh, and And so that the timing of how this movement develops is going to be extremely important and it's going to be incredibly important uh to invite men in and to and and to have men begin uh to take visible roles in working with other men as well as with women mhm mhm mm-hmm. yeah yeah hillary yeah it's it's tricky um i it's tricky. It's interesting that Catherine Deneuve, the actress, had something to say about this this morning as well. And at the same time, timing is everything. There may need to be a time for a social marinating in what is being said. I mean, it's literally just a few months old. Um, feminism itself is really, like critical feminism is really just a few decades old. Um you know, I, I just did jury duty. Women didn't sit on juries in the state of Oregon until, I believe, the 1960s. Can you believe that? Oh, wow. So, so what, we used the word um, tribes earlier on. You know, sometimes I wonder, are women and men, we can think of ourselves almost as different tribes, you know, and um, it's as though our evolution is a little different and we're, you know, we're each kind of gaining, gaining the other. And so the, the depth of, of evolutionary biological markings on us is really very, very strong. And, and so I think we have to, we have to honor that. And, and this need, I, I tend to define power less as coercion, which is 
classically how social scientists, I like to start with a definition more out of philosophy because I, I, I come more from that. Um, I always loved how Nietzsche spoke about it or, or Paul Tillich talks about it too. This, this idea of self-expression and, and it, it brings us back to ourselves rather than seeing power as something that this poor little lacking self needs. So if I can begin to feel powerful, i.e. self-creative, I will probably want to tear the other down an awful lot less. Um, so I think we have to admit to ourselves um, our, our, our sense of lack and then, and then try to take care of that. In other words, we need to do our work here and we need to do it fast. Um, there is this part of me that feels we're given, we're being given this, this opportunity um, to, to, to upgrade the, the action logic to, to upgrade ourselves as a species, as a whole tribe together at a time when our technology is so profoundly powerful. I mean, we could literally be looking at the last generations. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a big deal. So, so you're talking about the shift from thinking of power in terms of um, I don't have power and I, you know, have to try and find a way to act on uh, and, and, and find coercion. Uh, either on other people or on the environment, but in order to exist, uh, you know, basically I, I, I exert power, therefore I am, uh, mm-hmm. versus a sense of, oh, I feel this sense of power radiating from me. You know, I exist, therefore I have power. Uh, and from that place of I exist, therefore I have power, it is possible to negotiate with other beings who have also that sense of I exist, therefore I have power. Right, and and then part of my my longing becomes I want the other to have power too because I have this deep longing to co-create, to create something with with the other. Um, just by the way, I, I've been inspired by Bill's work to think more about relational action logics um, and and understanding that we can be very well developed in in certain ways, but sexually we tend to be rather underdeveloped in part because the whole taboo of sexuality has kept uh, Greek darkness over something really rather simple. Um, and, and, and so, and so the, the idea of allowing ourselves know how afraid we are in relationship in this kind of early, um, more splitting stages. And I, I do think that relationship with the mother, you know, the, 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 the feminist psychoanalytical thinking is really very important for us to, to, to get our hands around, to understand why we want to plunder the other, especially the feminine other and, and, and mother and mother earth. If we can begin to allow ourselves to know these truths at the same time, holding that we also have power because we're creative beings. We're not that lacking. If we can hold and, and pair these two pe- bits of information at the same time, um, I think we can, we can get somewhere. But it, it is, it's difficult work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what comes up is that I think in what I'm hearing from both of you is a sense of the centrality of figuring out how we deal with power. So we're talking more about power than about sexuality. Mm. Um, is that, is that right? Am I hearing you well, correctly or? Uh, what, uh, in a general way, I would say that at the early action logics, 
power and love and inquiry are viewed as virtually hostile to one another. Power is one thing, it's ugly and mean, and love is soft and gentle, and love is blind and not inquiring, and if I have enough power, I don't need to inquire, I can just make it come true. Uh, whereas in the later action logics, um, it increasingly becomes recognized that the three, power, love, and uh, inquiry, are mutually necessary. Um, uh, because uh, to, in fact, be powerful in the world, I have to be receiving a lot of feedback about how the other person, the other people in the group uh, are responding to actions that I take in order to make my own actions more timely. I I have to uh, get beyond thinking that there's a particular way of acting that is right or wrong. more about power, but in the later stages, I mean, at the redefining stage, uh, the mutual form of power, I say, is visioning power. In other words, can we can we uh, talk and negotiate uh, and develop a vision of what the relationship we want is together, rather than each of us assuming differently that when we say we love each other, we know what the other means <laughs> and what we ourselves mean. Uh, that that there's a that we can get together. Hillary talks about self-expression, but this would be you know, mutual self-expression. Um, and then w- one of the big problems in life is, yes, we have great intentions and visions, um, but we contradict them through our actions from time to time. Uh, and we need uh, to make an agreement with one another to give one another feedback about when um, our actions are incongruent with what we've agreed to as our vision. So, uh, there's a kind of what you know the Marxists called it praxis. What? How do we align our theory and our practice? Um, what kind of conversation helps to do that? There's a great kind of power in that conversation to help me become uh, have greater integrity between my intent and my outcome. So, um, so yeah, there are different kinds of power, and those different kind of power um, create more mutuality. And in general. Uh, sex is better when it's mutual. Even if we agree together to have a little sadomasochism, uh, just to get things spiced up, uh, if we agree to it together, uh, that's entirely different from if it is simply enacted. Yeah, you know, sexuality and, and conversation, they're marvelous examples of this place where um, the sharing of power, the inviting of the other to be powerful with me, etc. These are places where literally things start to become sexy. They be- start to become erotic. Um, so, so there's a polarity here, right? If we're only talking cognitively about power, it can sound like, oh, such boring people. Um, <laughs> but in fact, this is in service to this beautiful body that does, that does want to light up with others. Um, you know, we, we there's this, complex dance between between us and i think some some of women's delight and fear is one to have more partners to literally dance with or to converse with right because the erotic expresses itself in in different ways it can be a beautiful meal it can be a tango it can be love making it expresses itself in different ways and women have this great longing in part because i think we're very well socialized for partnership and sharing and having fun and Talking about relationship, you know, we're really we're really great at that. And so many women, we feel hungry for for male partners to meet us. At the same time, um, I think that the question for 
for me and, and other women is, well, what is healthy masculine eroticism? What does that really even look like? So I wonder if Freud today would be asking, you know, was will der Mann? You know, because toxic masculinity has expressed itself as this kind of dominance. And honestly, I think the payoff here is really great sex. What has passed for good sex is just appalling. And I say to younger women in particular, you know, don't do that. It's horrible. You don't, it can be so much better, but you have to cultivate um, a kind of a kind of erotic inquiry together, which requires a willingness to go into issues of power and inquiry, and that's why I feel like, oh my God, we're never going to get there in this time of Tinder and 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 all of that. But but, but maybe so, by staying alive long enough. But I'm hearing it as a as what could be a a conclusion to to our discussion. That sense of um, you know the that the way out is um, not just in a way to say that we need to, there's a balance between the three, between eros, uh, power, and inquiry. But uh, what, Hillary, you were alluding to is actually that there is a, a playfulness and a dance of, um, you know, the spirit of eros actually works beautifully with dancing with power and, and playing with it. Yeah, maybe that's the life force itself. That's important for me to say that so much of this work is impersonal and life wants us. <laughs> life wants us to live. That's what our whole DNA is about. So yeah, join, join the dance. We have the picture of a tango dancers on the cover. Yes. <laughs> it's a slightly, you know, we're playing with the dance. Yeah. <laughs> this recording is part of the podcast at relationalimplicit.com. Way out is um, not just in a way to say that we need to, there's a balance between the three, between eros, uh, power, and inquiry. But uh, what Hillary, you were alluding to, is actually that there is a, a playfulness and a dance of um, you know the spirit of eros actually works beautifully with dancing with power and and playing with it. Yeah, maybe that's the life force itself. I, that's important for me to say that so much of this work is impersonal and life wants us. <laughs> life wants us to live. That's what our whole DNA is about. So yeah, join, join the dance. We have the picture of a tango dancers on the cover. Yes. <laughs> it's a slightly, you know, we're playing with the dance. Yeah. <laughs> This recording is part of the Somatic Mindfulness and Relational Psychotherapy podcast. See the website, relationalimplicit.com.